Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from the Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. As you do, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church, Father, that you have called us to be a part of, that we may come and worship you, and we may gather in your presence with the saints and sing the excellencies of your name. Father, we are in a time of great transition, uh, both in our passage, but also in our world. And I pray that today, as we look at what your word has for us, Father, it would move our wills in such a way that we would glorify you, that we would know what it is to be your people in this place under your rule. Whether it's in Matthew or whether it's in the United States of America, Father, you have the direction for us. Help us see your word. Help us live your word. Help us trust your word in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you've opened up to Matthew 4. We're going to wrap up this chapter. It's my task today to kind of string together two different things. We have done the opening of Jesus's uh, birth and uh, his movement towards ministry, but we've been seeing that it's been dominated by the forerunner and John the Baptist. And today we have three little vignettes that we're going to tackle that help get us to chapter five, which is where most of the books on the New Testament have been written, and that is the Sermon on the Mount. But what is there for us today as we look at these three little pictures? Well, the title of our series has been The King and His Kingdom. We've yet to truly really see this king. Obviously, we know who that king is. But we've been told more specifically and currently that his kingdom is near or at hand. But where is it? If it's near, where is it? And really, maybe more importantly, what is it? These three little vignettes that we're looking at today will help us see the kingdom. Matthew 4, 12 through 25 shows us a snapshot of the kingdom breaking in. 
It's the opening to the real second main section of Matthew's gospel, and it stretches all the way to chapter 16. Now, much of the following after today in this section outlines what the kingdom looks like, how it will be ruled and and who will be there as we see God's specific instruction for people, taking things from the law and showing them what they meant today, what the spirit of the law is. You say that you should not commit adultery. I agree. Let me tell you what it really means. It means you should not look upon a woman with lust. We begin to see how the spirit of the law reigns and rules in God's people. We're not there yet. We'll walk through that, and it's going to culminate in chapter 16 with a recognition of who the king is. Finally, when Peter confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But what does the kingdom look like? What is the kingdom? If I could set us up for several uh, coming months, it would be with this. What is the kingdom? Many of you know this, some of you don't. This is what we hold to. It's an important component for the way that we do ministry and, and preach the Bible. God's kingdom is this, God's people in God's place under God's rule and then subsequent blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. Sometimes we forget the end part. Um, it's an important part. It's not a tack on. It's not to say, and also it will be good. It's because God's kingdom is a covenant kingdom. And covenants always come with blessings or curses. It's an important part. Don't leave it off. God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. If they reject God's rule, they are not God's people and they will not be in his place and they will be under covenant curse. It's an important component. God's people in God's place under God's rule and subsequent blessing. That's what kingdom is. And I think that our passage today helps us see each of those three pieces. The first thing I want you to see today is God's rule. God's rule, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people that were dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, God's people have been back in the land for about 400 years, rebuilding the walls, their homes. And then after some chastisement from God and Malachi, finally fixing his own home, the second temple. But have they really been a people in this land truly under his rule? Have they really been back under the rule of God? They don't have a king. The line of David seems to be gone. They were promised that there would be a Davidic king to sit on the throne forever. Instead, they have Herod, King Herod, the one who arrested John, for calling him out for his sin of marrying his niece. Do, do they have a ruler? Is he the best they have? They have not been faithful. Even in their return from the great discipline of exile, they did not learn their lesson. They've been judged in this by the great swaths of pagan Gentiles. 
that have overtaken the promised holy land. Those pagan Gentiles that were purged from the land under Joshua for a people that were just gods has been overtaken again. And even now they are under Roman occupation. And things are looking pretty dark. And we talked about this in Advent, right? The waiting, the long silence, the need for Messiah, the Christ, to deliver his people. These are our people that truly are dwelling in darkness. One commentator said this about it. He says, this is a territory that's assigned to death, and that's where they sit. They are close to death, for they are in its shadow, a term that also points to the lack of light. The people in mind are those whose horizon is bounded by death, and they look out across the horizon and it is bounded by death. Death is a tyrant, and their whole life is lived in its shadow, subject to its nearness under its threat. To make matters worse, John, the forerunner of Christ, has been arrested. And his dark death is imminent as well. These people need their king. They need the light of his rule and his deliverance. And Matthew feels it. Matthew feels it and he reaches into his bag of Isaiah tricks again. And what does he pull out? The people dwelling in darkness, they have seen a great light. Those dwelling in this region and the shadow of death under this tyrant of death, on them a light has dawned. You see, Jesus takes his encampment, his ministry base, as it were, out of Nazareth and moves into Capernaum. He doesn't only minister in Capernaum, as we'll see. <coughs> but he moves his base there, and he does that in light of the arresting of John. That's what spurs the song. And what you find then, if we're going to follow our theme, is that Jesus' occupation of Capernaum replaces the occupation of the Romans, the stand-in for those who originally plunged it into darkness, the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the ones who originally plunged it into darkness. They crushed Zebulun and Naphtali. They're the reason that there's death on the horizon through God's judgment. Then, of course, the Greeks come, the Romans come, and that's what we're left with, ruling and occupying Capernaum, but instead Jesus now moves his base there and begins to occupy it. Jesus breaks on the scene, leaving Nazareth. Why does he go here? Why does he go to Capernaum? Now the commentator said they may well have been living in the shadow of moral and spiritual death as their more orthodox neighbors, Judea, Jerusalem. Jerusalem's looking up at them saying, yeah, that's not a good, not a good place morally. We're better. Jerusalem is where you want to be. We're better. That's, that's darkness up there in Capernaum and Galilee. But on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's not uncharacteristic of God to go for the least likely place where the Orthodox would never expect to find them among the greatest masses of unreached humanity. And we'll see this pay off in just a little bit. But Jesus moves here to this great mixture of Jew and Gentile that over time has formed here. 
And Jesus begins his ministry. Now that John the Baptist has run his course, preparing disciples for Christ, Calvin poetically said, for it amounts to this, that when the dawn has passed, the sun arose. So Jesus begins his ministry. This is from then on. It's an important thing that Matthew uses to help us understand the movement of time. From then on, he begins. How does he begin his ministry? Picking right up where John did. What's he do? He preaches. That's what ministry was for Jesus, preaching. Preaching from then on, Jesus began to preach, period. What did you think he would do? What did you think that Jesus would be involved in? What else was there to do for a Jewish rabbi? What should he be involved in? Jesus' beginning of his ministry is preaching. (coughs) J.C. Ryle says this in his reflections on Matthew. He says, There's no office so honorable as that of the preacher. There is no work so important to the souls of men. It is an office which the Son of God was not ashamed to take up. It's an office to which he appointed his twelve apostles. It's an office to which St. Paul, in his old age, specially directs Timothy's attention. He charges him, with almost his last breath, to preach the word. (coughs) With or without a voice. He says this, it is the means which God has always been pleased to use above any other for the conversion and edification of souls. The brightest days of the church have been when those preaching have been honored. The darkest days of the church have been those when it has been lightly esteemed. Let us honor the sacraments and public prayers of the church for sure and reverently use them. Let us beware that they do not place them above preaching. Preaching is the first task of which Jesus undertakes in this new kingdom. You want to know what the kingdom is full of? Preaching. Preaching of what? What does he preach? He preaches repentance. He preaches repentance. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near. He says repent. And that should stand on its own, right? But there's, blessedly, a cause attached to it. What does the call to repentance come from? Where is it originating? What is motivating and driving this repentance call? You may get tired of it in the preaching. You may get tired of it in your discipleship. You may get tired of it in the teaching. You may get tired of it in the reading. It's everywhere, but it's motivated by something very specific. And what does he say? Because, because why? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. It has come. It is drawn near. And so if we're going to be involved in any fashion in the kingdom, the because comes with it. Repentance has to be a part of it. Calvin says he exhorts the Jews to conversion, to repentance, because the kingdom of God is at hand. That is because God undertakes to govern or rule his people, which is true and perfect happiness. The fact that God has chosen, he has undertaken unto himself to govern his people, to rule his people, is a blessed, true, and perfect happiness. And to truly be under the rule, the governance of God, 
is to be repentant. Do you want true and perfect happiness? Are there things in your life that need true and perfect happiness? Place it under the rulership, the governance of God the Father and Jesus Christ. That's the call. God has undertaken, it is time to rule His people. The new king, the king that falls from the line of David, is here. He has undertaken to rule His people. When He comes on the scene, He's saying, it's time for another king. I am here to rule. Kevin takes this into more of Paul's writing, which is, I think, very helpful. He says we must observe the designation that Paul gives to the gospel. Paul calls the gospel the kingdom of God. He makes them the same. Remember, gospel is good news. And in fact, in the CSB, you might have that version. It says the good news of the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. They are inexplicably tied together. Calvin says, for hence we learn that by the preaching of the gospel, the kingdom of God is set up and established among men. And that in no other way does God reign among men. So it's also evident how wretched the condition of men is without the gospel. Without the gospel, there is no repentance. Without the good news of the kingdom of God's rulership, there is no repentance. And if there is no repentance, then what does that mean that you are ruled by? Your sin. That's the condition that we're left in. That's where Paul is saying, this isn't two kingdoms, this isn't two pieces. If you are going to be part of the kingdom, then you are free from sin. If you're not going to be free from, for the, from the kingdom, in this kingdom, you are slave to your sin. That is all that is left. Repentance is necessary for us. The kingdom having come near is the occasion or the need for this act of repentance. Jesse Ryle says this, The necessity of repentance is one of the great foundations which lie at the very bottom of Christianity. It needs to be pressed on all mankind without exception. High or low, rich or poor, all have sinned and are guilty before God. And all must repent and be converted if they would be saved. And true repentance is no light matter. It is a thorough change of heart about sin. A change showing itself in godly sorrow and humiliation and heartfelt confession before the throne of grace and a complete breaking off from sinful habits and an abiding hatred of all sin. Such repentance is the inseparable companion of saving faith in Christ. Let us prize the doctrine highly. It is of the utmost and highest importance. No Christian teaching can be called sound, which does not constantly bring forward repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. You wonder what we mean by repentance? It's that. And it is something to be treasured. Why can it be treasured? That's such a heavy subject. It's a call to death, we know from later, right? Come and die. Why? I'm fine that I might truly 
live. Calvin's right. Dour, sour, Calvinistic Calvin is the one who says all true and perfect happiness is found here. Where? In repentance from sins. So I appreciate that prayer that Pastor Jeff read earlier. A lot of times we have trouble getting into the specifics of things, of being thorough. My dad was always all about being thorough. And it was not until I had my own children that I learned this lesson, unfortunately. But thoroughness is not really something that we can pick up on our own. It's something that has to be taught. For instance, as a woodworker, if I had someone come to my shop and they said, hey, how can I help out? I'd be like, could you please sand that project for me? They'd be like, yes, I can do that. And they would probably pick up some kind of sandpaper that I had laying around and rub the wood with it. And are they sanding it? Absolutely. Are they being thorough and doing it well? I can tell you the answer is no. I appreciate the effort, but no. Um, you have to go by certain grits. It means it matters how big the sand in the sandpaper is. Um, you have to go in a certain direction or I will shoot you um, because you will completely destroy the grain of the wood. You have to spray it with water so that the water goes in and absorbs into the wood and those fibers stick back out so that you can cut them off again and actually make sure it's smooth. Unless you sand it, think that you're done, put your finish on it, come back and rub your hand across your finished wood project and it feels like someone just turned the sandpaper over. There's a certain way to be thorough. You have to get in all the crannies and all the cracks. You have to get all the dust up. You have to do it right and thoroughly. When it comes to us and our confession and repentance, the, tr the reality is true that Jesus did our confession and he did our repentance and he did our baptism for us as we've already seen. But the life of living sacrifice in Romans 12 that gets into the very specific nitty-gritty of what it looks like to worship rightly with your body in the body has a specific call to repentance. Do you look at all the different things that Pastor Jeff listed in our prayer life to repent of those things specifically? To look out for all the dangers, to go across all the nooks and crannies, to use all the varied kinds of graces, no matter what grit it might be, that you might be clean. Repentance is a high doctrine for the church. And this is what it means to be under the rule of Christ, which is why it's so important, so prized. It brings freedom. We'll see this more clearly in a moment. But repentance leads to life, away from paying the penalty of the land of the shadow of death. Turn from sins that they might be forgiven. Calvin shows us how this looks. He says, the Lord commands you to turn to himself. But as you cannot accomplish this by your own endeavors, he then promises the spirit of regeneration. And therefore, you must receive this grace by faith. At the same time, the faith which he enjoins men to give to the gospel ought not by any means be confined to the gift of renewal, but relates chiefly to the forgiveness of sins. John connects repentance with faith because God reconciles us to himself in this manner, that we serve him as a father in holiness and in righteousness. The call first is repent, but guess what? You can't do that by yourself. You need faith. And where does faith come from? It's a gift from God. As he regenerates your heart, you then repent. As you move in repentance, it's not simply this faith, this grace of faith that we're to treasure. Your biggest and chief issue as a human on this planet is your sin. There's nothing else. There's nothing else by which you should be concerned about. It should be that. 
And there's no way for you to handle it apart from the sacrifice of Christ. And so in the fact that you receive faith, Calvin says, the chief gift that you should treasure is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Repentance with faith is tied together because God deals with us in this way. He takes our sin and he gives us righteousness. Now, you tell me, is this a good king? It's good to have a king. His rule is good. So let me ask, how hard is it for you to repent? How hard is it for you to repent? Christian, because forgiveness of sins is the chief gift, it means it's done. It means it's done. You have been forgiven. You stand forgiven. The hard work is done. What else is there to be forgiven for? He has paid for your past, present, and future sins. He has taken your sin. All of it. He has given you His righteousness. And so when it comes to repentance, when it comes to turning back, when it comes to doing everything that we read from Ryle, recognizing um, a, a turn from darkness to light, recognizing our desire still that Pastor Matt was talking about last week for darkness in instances and saying, no, but in righteousness I will turn to light now. There's freedom. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You have to trust. You have to trust that sin is forgiven. That makes repentance really easy. The problem is we're ashamed of repentance. Are you ashamed of this message? Can you go out into the world and wave the flag that your Christ's first words in his ministry were repent? That's a hard message to bring to a world that hates it. And so we find ourselves often ashamed of this message. And if we're ashamed of the message before men, how are we feeling about it in our own hearts about us? How hard is it to submit your kingdom to his rule? How hard is it to take your family and submit your kingdom to his rule? Do you prefer to live in darkness? More importantly, do you even see death touching your life around you? It was on the horizon for them. They lived in the shadow of it. Church, if you don't feel that, you can't see. Let's see how God's people respond to his rule. The second one today is God's people. Verse 18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
something to remember as we tackle this is that Jesus was Jewish and he was a teacher and that makes him a rabbi. It was customary for disciples to choose their own teacher, their own rabbi, and follow him if they would so choose. And when we talk about follow them, they're identifying their teaching, their style, their ideas. In many ways, there was philosophy involved. And they literally followed him. Following him so that they might absorb everything, the way of life, the thinking, and the actions of the rabbi. I know that the student becomes like its teacher. And I took that very literally. The picture of a disciple was one who followed his rabbi so close that the dust from the rabbi's shoes would get on him. It literally means follow behind the disciple. It was also customary for rabbis to really kind of set up shop in like one town or an area and then teach there or in some other cases, like some of the scrolls that we found, to retreat into seclusion in a sort of kind of monk type way. But Jesus is, well, not customary. (laughs) Some might call him weird. He did not just stay in Capernaum, but he went throughout all Galilee. His disciples didn't choose him. Rather, he chose them. You might say they were the chosen. Nothing? Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah. Jesus is a little bit different when he comes on the scene here, right? Normally, they are attracted to him. They follow him, all that stuff. He's walking along. He goes, you two, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Right? First dad joke in the Bible, too. This is Jesus' pattern. And he goes and he does it again to more fishermen. Matthew omits the miracle of the overburdened nets of fish. That's in the other synoptic gospels. But also remember that Matthew is aimed at a Jewish audience, and he's portraying Jesus as king to them. That's what all of Matthew is aimed at. And so why does he omit that miracle? Why does he, why does he change the scheme here? Because notice how directly he frames this whole story. Repentance is the theme, right? I mean, he just established that. These are not disconnected. Repentance is the theme. Now look how swiftly obedience comes from these Jewish men with Greek names. Right? This rough and rowdy fisherman. Jesus comes. They've had some experience with his teaching before, but they weren't yet disciples. He comes upon them and he says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. How does he record it? Immediately. They left it and they followed him. He comes to the other two. He says, follow me. He calls them. And what does it say? Immediately. They left their nets and their father. And they followed him. John Stott said, rough and rowdy they may have been, but they had the courage and the decisiveness necessary to make these sacrifices and to follow Jesus, a step that proved too costly for the religious and the educated. The church can immediately be said after your name. Will you follow him? When you are called by the word of God, is it immediate? Children, your parents may require you to obey immediately. Where does that come from? Here. Yeah, God. Point to God. God's word demands obedience. 
And as we represent him to you, your parents represent God to you, obedience is required. Immediately. Why? Because when you're an adult and God calls you, we want your answer to be immediate. Just like it is here for the disciples. Church, what keeps you from following? How easy it would have been to say, Dad, is it okay if I go? Mr. Zebedee, sir, can I leave you? Will you be okay? Can I follow the teacher? How easy it would have been for Peter to say, you know what? I've got another guy in town that I'm a little bit more connected with. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to learn from him. You can go, bro. That's fine. Follow I'll, I'll, I'll clean up the nets. And say, no, this isn't for me. Not right now. You know, I just, I just got this boat. I just got this net. If I look at one of the other gospels, I just got this large haul of fish that we couldn't even pull into the boat. And I'm, I can't just leave him out here in the sun. That's not caring for creation. We have theological excuses, we have personal excuses, we have family excuses, we have political excuses, we have job excuses, we have excuses everywhere. But when Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, he expects you to immediately get up and follow. This is what faith is. I don't know why, except that you're God and I trust you. So, okay. Everything that has been instilled in a Jewish young boy's mind from the Torah to the history to the Proverbs says depend on Yahweh. That's the theme of the Old Testament. And when Yahweh shows up and says, follow me, you depend on him. Chapter 16 hasn't happened yet for Peter. He hasn't recognized him as the Christ. Yet immediately he leaves the boat and follows them. Why? Why would he do this? What did he say that they were going to do? What did they follow him towards? These fishermen would become man fishers. It's no longer a question of taking fish from the lake, but of drawing men up out of the abyss of sin and death, catching them in the great net of God. Jesus' disciples would not only learn from him, but would bring others into living contact with God. That's the mission. That's the job. That's a lot better than a whole net full of fish. Drawing men up out of the abyss of sin and death and catching them in the great net of God. What's the mission? I, one of God's people, getting more of God's people, adding to God's people. The kingdom is at hand. Come into the kingdom. Come to life. Come to perfect and blessed happiness. Come into the kingdom. The church, is your life oriented around this mission? That's what's happening. That's what's happening. Is your life oriented around this mission? How is your household oriented around this mission? Is your family proclaiming the excellencies of the kingdom of God and drawing them up out of the water to new life as we see pictured in baptism? That's the job. That's what God's people do. That's what makes God's people God's people. Next thing we want to see today to bring us home it's God's place. 
God's place. Verse 23, <clears throat> he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the good news, of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So for those who said that they would come and die and find that they might truly live, as we saw even in um, our last song, are we willing to forego all in order to follow him? Those people went out, and what comprised the ministry? Three things, preaching, teaching, and healing. Preaching, teaching, and healing. Preaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Teaching the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. Healing, bringing the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. One commentator says this, John had preached the same message, but in Jesus' ministry, what for John was future became present. And God's kingdom became a reality. Gospel means good news. And gospel of the kingdom is used by Matthew here and elsewhere as a summary of the message of Jesus and of his disciples, that in him the kingdom of heaven has arrived. And so you can see what God's land, God's place, God's kingdom is full of. What's it full of? Kingdom ministry embraces preaching, teaching, in healing, when the church exercises this ministry, she will often lack the power, immediacy, and effectiveness of Jesus. But he shared God's nature in a way that the church does not. But wherever the church is truly carrying out the work of the kingdom, those three strands, challenging preaching, clear teaching, and healing of physical disease, inner hurts, gripped by dark forces, all of these things will be seen. Let me tell you <laughs> what a blessing it was this week on our retreat to recount the power of God at work in your family's lives. How encouraging it is to, to see and recount the sick being healed and, and pains being freed and oppression lifted and relationships restored. How powerful it is to see you following after Christ and joyfully building this kingdom of God. That's what was, we were talking about. That's what we saw. That's what we've seen over the past year. Wherever the church is truly carrying out the work of the kingdom, those three things stand. You, church, are truly carrying out the work of the kingdom. We praise God for it. We see the power of God at work. That's what it means to come into God's place. That's what makes this place different than every other place. That's what it means to bring the kingdom. That's what it means to expand Eden into all the world. That's what it means to go forth and have dominion, to bring God's place everywhere. And it comes with these three things. In the same way that the Israelites looked forward to the Holy Land, the Promised Land, as a land, what? Flowing with milk and honey. People should look at the church of God and say, that's God's place and look forward to it as it's overflowing with challenging preaching clear teaching, and a freedom that comes from the healing of souls. 
that's what it overflows with. And when those three things are missing, any of those three things are missing, you have an incomplete kingdom. It's a false kingdom. The power of Satan is able to bring about any two of those things at once. They're all fake versions. We have to look for these three things. We have to be about these three things. Why? And why do we know that this is the kingdom of God? Because these three things happening are evidence of God's power. His hand at work. J.C. Ryle says this, these miracles here are meant to teach us our Lord's power. He that could heal sick people with a touch and cast out devils with a word is able to save to the uttermost all them that come unto God by him. He is the Almighty. We see God's power at work in his place. Church, I hope you have eyes to see this. I hope you have eyes to see this. You can see it in your own life. You can see it in your family as you look back and recount the mercies of God in your home. You look back at your home group and you see God's power at work in people's lives. You can look down the pew and you can tell the stories. This church should be full of stories as we speak these things back to each other. I was encouraged by that from Pastor Jeff this past week. We have stories all over the place in this, in his body. Tell them. Tell them of what God has done. We have to have eyes to see, and many did. If you look at the response of what happened here in Jesus' display of power, many people responded. <clears throat> One commentator says this, Jesus' following was drawn not only from Galilee, the area of his actual activity, but also, catch this, from Judea to the south, and to the east from both Decapolis, this is a largely Gentile confederacy. It literally means ten cities, ten large cities. And Perea, beyond the Jordan, now in a normal Jewish sense. In contrast, right, all of this together is Old Testament Gilead. What does that mean? What is he describing? He's describing the whole ancient Holy Land. The promised land, the whole ancient promised land that Moses, Joshua, were heading towards, has now responded to the coming of the Messiah. This is God's place. The entire Holy Land responding to the coming of the Messiah. The land, God's place. Church, how are you enjoying God's place? Is this place a blessing for you? If it's not, Why? Do you see his power at work in you? Let's look at those three things. Do you see his power at work in you through challenging preaching? Do you value it? Do you prepare for it? Do you do something with it? I've told my home groups for 14 years now, at the end of every sermon, you should have a gold star somewhere on your page. If you want me to, I'll go to the dollar store and I'll get you those little gold star foil stickers, okay? Put one on every notes page that you take. There should be something that you're going to take home this week and do. Something has to stand out to you. The Spirit does not let His Word return void. Are you a preaching glutton? Remember that knowledge without action is gluttony. Do you share it? Does it form you? Does it shape you? Or does the preaching just help you and encourage you? 
The difference between preaching and teaching is that teaching is about knowledge transfer and preaching is about commanding the will. Which means, does the preaching drive your heart to worship and move your will? How are you enjoying God's place and challenging preaching? Do you see His power at work in you through clear teaching? Do you know Jesus better because of your participation in God's place here? Your coworker stops by tomorrow and asks, What's Jesus like? What does it mean to have a relationship with Him? Your teammate or your classmate asks you after practice or after school, What is God like? What does it mean that God is love? What does it mean that God is just? What does it mean that God's omniscient? Are there more? What is he? Can you answer those questions? Do you know how to read your Bible? I didn't ask do you know how to read. There's a difference. Do you know the books that comprise it? Are you taking advantage of every opportunity to learn about God and His Word for the days are evil and eternity is at stake? How are you enjoying God's place because of teaching? Do you see His power at work in you through healing? Let me ask you, is Satan fighting a losing battle in your heart, in your home? Or is he gaining ground? Can you count the victories? Are your soldiers marching onward, Christian? Is oppression lifted? Is addiction's grip broken? Is darkness being dispelled? Has anxiety given way to courage? Has depression given way to hope? Has bitterness given way to sacrificial love? This is what happens in God's place. And it's spreading. It's taking over the world. It's our mission, as we'll see very clearly in about, what, 18 chapters that Jesus leaves us with. This is what true and perfect happiness looks like with our King and His kingdom. The freedom that comes from being God's people in God's place under God's rule. See the light, follow Him, and be free. Let's pray. Father God, as we look forward to your teaching, as we begin to see the do's and the don'ts, as we begin to see the law really incarnated, made flesh, as we begin to see how we can glorify you very clearly in all of these things, let us not lose sight that it all happens in your kingdom. Father, let us not lose sight of the fact that while we were still enemies of yours, while we were outside the walls, while we were sharpening our blades, hating you, you saw fit to send your son to die for his enemies. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, you brought us to life 
You showed us our sin. You gave us faith to trust you. You took it away and gave us righteousness. It wasn't earned by us, but it was earned by your Son. Father, let us go forward trusting you. That when you call, we immediately follow. Let us be about finding more of your people and drawing them up out of the water into the kingdom of your Son. Father, we know one day all things will be subjected to him. He will reign and rule over everything. Father, as we spend this time gathering those into the kingdom, we pray that you would help us see the light, follow you, and live in freedom. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.